Hello and welcome to the Digital Lighthouse. I'm Zoe Cunningham. On the Digital Lighthouse, we get inspiration from tech leaders to help us shine a light through turbulent times. We believe that if you have a lighthouse, you can harness the power of the storm. Today, I'm super excited to welcome Herb Kim, who is founder and CEO of Thinking Digital. So hello, Herb, and welcome to the Digital Lighthouse. Hi, Zoe. Thank you for the invite. Great to see you. You are so welcome. So can you tell us a bit about what it is that you do right now and also the journey that you've been on to get to where you are? Okay, cool. Yeah. So today, I'm really best known for um, producing and curating and directing a number of thought leadership conferences, all based up in the north between Newcastle, Durham, Manchester, Sheffield, and Liverpool. And yeah, and my journey, I guess, is an unusual one in the sense, I mean, I was probably tell from the accent, I'm not very Geordie or Mancunian. I was uh, born in Brooklyn to Korean parents. Uh, I was raised in America, I was educated there. And I got my MBA in Philadelphia, and but I did a semester at London Business School, and that sort of started my UK journey in the sense in that uh, I did a year working at the Internet Division of IBM after graduating in 1996, or right kind of at the dawn of what you might call the modern internet. And um, basically, through a long story, I was invited to join Blackwell's, the UK publisher and bookstore chain to help set up their first internet bookshop. Uh, this would have been back in 97. And that's what got me here. I mean, that was the beginning of the first dot-com boom or bubble, depending on which way you want to describe it. And um, I uh, went to work for a big German publisher doing basically the same thing. Then I went to work for a couple of years for what used to be called BT Cellnet, now O2. And it was from there that, again, I know a little bit of the long story, I got invited to set up a not-for-profit economic development company in Newcastle to seek to develop and hothouse the burgeoning tech digital sector in northeast of England. This would have been 2002. I arrived in October 2002 on, I like to joke, on Geordie Shores. And through that, we were looking for a kind of big project to kind of advance our goals there. And it was around that time that I discovered something called TED, and their first ever international conference called TED Global back in 2005 in Oxford. And I found a way to get to the TED main conference, which was still back then in Monterey, California, and had a, you know, in short, a kind of life-changing experience. And I came back uh, inspired to try and do our own version of TED there was no TEDx program at the time, and we were jokingly calling this project codenamed Jordy TED. <laughs> and because there was no TEDx program, which probably would have just simply set up like a TEDx Newcastle style event, we created something called Thinking Digital. The first one ran in 2008. I mean, the, the first one, if I'm honest, nearly destroyed the company <laughs> because it was so much more complicated and frankly expensive to put on than we ever could have realized. Uh, but we survived by the second one. People started to get the concept because, of course, we were, you know, doing a TED-inspired event without – there were no TED Talks at the time. 
Uh, there was no TEDx events at the time. Right. And you couldn't use the name. So you, you, you were kind of like, it's like this, but we can't say that. Exactly. Exactly. And so uh, we had to just trust that through enough promotion to try and convince people on the quality of the content that they would come. And eventually they did. And, and here we are 15 years later. Obviously, we couldn't run an event during COVID, but we just did the 14th Thinking Digital in that time. And um yeah, it's still going strong, fortunately, and it's still a joy to produce. Oh, well, congratulations. I think it's really interesting to hear people's backgrounds because I think it's easy to look around and see, oh, that person's doing something cool. How do I get to do that? And everyone's roots are always so different. And hearing your journey, it's, you know, I can hear the kind of links between publishing, right, and the getting ideas out through books. And this is the same kind of premise, right? It's just now we have a lot more ways to share ideas and get people excited about things. I'd love to touch on it as well. You kind of mentioned that you grew up in the States. How has your experience there compared to your experience in Newcastle? So I think the, you know, I mean, I really loved growing up in America, but What's interesting for me is, I mean, I was in London before Newcastle, and I'm fairly convinced that had I not left London uh, and come to a place like Newcastle, I probably would have gone back home by now. And I think what Newcastle gave me relative to a London, and I think it's probably the same thing is true as if I had been living in New York, that I probably would have moved out of New York by now, right? is that Newcastle, I think for me, or Manchester or Liverpool, the other northern cities that I've worked in, just, you know, I've been lucky because, of course, you know, the obviously I know that the recent history of those cities are part of, I guess, what used to be called, you know, it's grim up north. And those cities obviously went through quite a big transition from their industrial past into their current iterations. I've been lucky enough, frankly, to probably miss out on some of the tougher parts, you know, and I know... You know, Software has got a brand new office in Manchester, which is how it became connected to you and others. We hosted a talk recently um, where they talked about how Manchester, the city center literally had hundreds of people <laughs> as, as official residents of Manchester. And it's just shocking today how it changed. I mean, we talked before, you're located near the sort of King's Crossing Pankhurst area, and that area has changed dramatically as well, of course. As well, and anyways, so I think getting back to your original question, uh, I think what Newcastle has given me—it's become a contemporary, you know, sort of modern city, affording me a lot of the cultural uh, and commercial benefits of being in an urban center. It's obviously less expensive, less intense, you know, probably friendlier, um, and hence, in many ways, it's a more of an American city in many ways relative to the Southeast, and that's not to be in any way anti-London or anti-Southeast. It's just they're different. I think anyone would acknowledge they are different. And so for me, it reminds me a lot of living in lots of other parts of America that I've been lucky enough to benefit from. So that to me is weirdly the thing is that I think life up north is in many ways reminds me a lot of living in more suburban areas, particularly in America, and hence perhaps why I've been here for so long and living here very comfortably with no plans and moving elsewhere. I mean, maybe it's quite a nice thought that actually the differences between countries 
are not so big as the differences between different parts of a country. Because like you say, we've just opened an office in Manchester and we're seeing exactly what you say, like, because it's smaller, it's friendlier, it's easier to connect to people. You know, London's great in many ways, but it's also, uh, you kind of get lost in how big it is. And I feel like in Manchester, it's easy to get involved in the tech scene. And in London, there isn't really even one tech scene because there's so many different parts of London and different groups within London. Uh, so that's really cool to hear that that's similar elsewhere as well as in the UK. Yeah, no, no, I think you're absolutely right, which is that I think people, especially during 2016, you know, that there was, I guess that term was a flyover country in America. We you know we had the kind of, I guess what we're calling metropolitan elites of coastal California and the coastal East Coast and the sort of middle of America, which obviously vast in geographic size. Uh, and I don't know, maybe there's there's similar parallels, you know, along those lines you know, to the UK, where I think there's this idea that, well, almost certainly that someone that sort of lives and breathes Manhattan, it will be very comfortable, probably more comfortable in, say, London than they would be in, I don't know, Omaha, Nebraska. No offense to Omaha, Nebraska. Certainly for me, the idea that I would be able to move to a small city like Newcastle or just in northern England, because I, I do genuinely work across all those cities and and find it as easy as uh, working in Boston or in San Diego and these sorts of places. I wouldn't have guessed that, but it's been very much true. Uh, I'd love to pick up on something you mentioned earlier. How is it that the kind of conference environment or the event environment helps people to consume information and learning and what's your experiences I guess contrasting as well with your experiences in publishing okay well I think I mean I think one thing is is just simply there are all these different ways of getting access to information right and so just in the same way that some people prefer reading books or watching videos on YouTube uh, or Listening to a podcast, listening to a podcast, <laughs> you know, or 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 being in a in a conference environment, they're just different. People do genuinely, as you know, learn in different ways, and also, you know, depending on the material, context will obviously matter greatly. You know, I think where conferences probably benefit in two ways, which is one is the ability to impart some emotional impact to the material. Obviously, the presence of other people, you know, is usually hopefully a positive factor. You know, I I just see them as as a kind of continuum of different ways of oftentimes, you know, doing the same thing, because obviously books have changed people's lives. And I think, you know, attending an amazing conference has, has done the same thing, but to different people, perhaps in different ways. Yeah, so I think it's definitely true that some people seem to learn better than other people and they seem to be able to take on more information and kind of maybe grow more quickly. Have you got any thoughts on what contributes to that? What is it that helps people learn and grow and absorb more information? I think there's, I mean, so going back to the discussion on the conference specifically, I think one of the things a conference can give is serendipity. And I think. So as an example, you know, I'm not trying to overly promote software here, but I mean, I I was invited to a software launch event in Manchester back in sort of October sort of time where I got to learn about something I'd never heard of before called the large language model. And of course, now, of course, everyone knows about, well, maybe not everyone, but certainly there's a much wider appreciation for what a large language model is. 
Yeah. And so that is something that is a lovely facet about a conference is oftentimes you are exposed to things that if it was left solely up to you, you wouldn't have, you wouldn't have checked out, you know, and I'm sure that, I mean, obviously large language models had already entered the con and tech, but I just chose to not really pay much attention to it until uh, Softwire decided to curate a bit of content via one Sean Williams, who I'm sure you're familiar with, and uh, blew my mind, as obviously he and others have been proceeding to do in the time since then. And so I think when a conference does its job well, and particularly for an audience, especially in the tech world, that maybe trends more introvert than perhaps, say, a sales conference or things like that, is that when you can open people's minds with new content or even old ideas, but well delivered, I believe that they become more open to ideas, but they also become more open to people. And so, you know, those same people in the same room, some of whom may go on to become best friends. I mean, I'll, hopefully I'll continue communicating and collaborating with Sean for years to come. Would have never bothered even making the effort, you know, because, well, classically speaking, introverts need big ideas in order to make small talk. And the extroverts are the opposite. They need small talk in order to get warmed up for, for bigger conversations. That's a great quote. I've not heard that before. I think that's really cool. Yeah, I'm not sure if I made that up or someone else said that to me. But <laughs> regardless, I'm, I'm not planning on trademarking it. So, I mean, I personally, until TED, I mean, I literally probably hated pretty much every conference or trade show. I used to do a ton of them for, I found them exhausting. I found the amount of effort and cost, frankly, on behalf of the company that in terms of what you got out, I thought it was just, I didn't see the value personally. But then, yeah, so for people that are more either, either introvert or ambivert or whatever expression you want to use, going with a content-heavy approach, and not just sheer volume of content, but obviously content that's high quality, where you spend a lot of time in making sure it's well-delivered, and actually, frankly, paying attention to things like lighting and a bunch of other things that all deliver to helping that content be appreciated by the audience, that warms up a very different kind of audience. That's something that I've learned, and, and it just depends on the kind of audience that you're working with. Yeah, that's super interesting. I'd like to kind of delve into that a bit more, because I think that one of the reasons people listen to podcasts in particular, similarly to conferences, is that you're trying to improve yourself, right? You're trying to learn some idea so that you can do something in your life better you know usually your job so I think I certainly on my journey to become a leader I consumed a lot of content trying to develop myself as a leader and to try and get you know these elusive leadership skills that would uh, make everything super easy all the time right and I just wondered if you have any top things you'd want to share with people on that leadership journey well, specifically, I mean, I mean, one thing I would say is that, you know, the classic thing is that these conferences are a lot harder to do than they look. <laughs> Even after years on, I'll, there's a kind of desire to try and get more comfortable and relaxed and make it easier. And that's a trap because <laughs> I, maybe I'm doing it wrong, but it seems that they always remain complicated and trying to get comfortable, trying to make it less stressful in some ways, a fool's errand. I would say, though, to some extent that 
producing an event is almost like a leadership training event, just because you're going to put yourself through a lot of stresses. I mean, you know, especially if you're leading the event, you're putting your name on the line. I mean, we obviously have dramatic examples like Fire Festival, where you can literally go to jail. Yeah, right. <laughs> but that's that's admittedly an extreme example, also involving fraud. And so let's let's not consider that. But I think it's rare to put yourself in front of a group of people. And promise them that you're going to put together an experience that's worth them taking a day, two days out of their lives. And then for those who venture on stage to do the presenting, that's a different leadership exercise. And it's very different from doing a keynote. It's very different from being in a panel. I think for me, it's taken me a long time. But now I'm at a point where I do coach people on how to do those talks. And I increasingly am coming to a conclusion we're not very satisfying. <laughs> People are, you wouldn't call this the world's most contented in history. And I do genuinely think that we're living through a global leadership crisis, you know, and I think there is a confusion of, I mean, what is the difference between leadership and management? Uh, this, which is a rhetorical thing I, I often ask myself and, and others now. I think the curse of a well-established company, country, is that eventually management takes over. You know, why is it that why is it that we there's this fascination with startups? Because if you look at their actual economic impact, it's like a barely a fly. But you know, they, they command an outsized amount of attention, certainly within the tech economy, but even in the broader economy, you know, a handful of sexy startups do get a hell of a lot of media attention. And why would that be? You know, and I think I think the main difference between the two is simply that I think one of the tasks, one of the big tasks of a leader is to hold the story about or the narrative about what this company, this organization, this country is about. You know, what are we and where are we going and why? Why should you care? Why should you want to be part of this thing? And, you know, I think any good startup typically doesn't start with, you know, $100 million in financing, right? They start with nothing, typically, right? And, or next to nothing. They have literally no employees, no money, no customers, sometimes no technology. They might have at best a PowerPoint presentation. And so their story, their narrative had better be pretty darn attractive on, on multiple different levels in order to attract investment, employees, you know, partners, uh, ultimately customers, and so on and so forth sort of thing. And I think in terms of developing a compelling talk, that is a fundamental act of leadership. Think about it like, you know, why is TED popular? Right. I mean, we've had lectures almost as long as people have been on the earth. Right. They're developing people into becoming leaders by helping them develop a story, a narrative, a presentation about their work and why it's important and why you should listen and care. Yeah. And at the same time, providing a service for the people watching, yeah. because hearing the story as well of a startup versus hearing the details of the management of a large corporation. Those are two very different experiences, aren't there? And I think totally. the point you're making about when you're a startup, the story is such a larger percentage of your activity <laughs> versus once you're a corporate, the story probably is not going to be that different. Yeah. Well, I think that story or narrative is actually a fundamental human need now. And I'll tell you why. So in 2016, we had stories like, we're going to make America great again, we're going to build the wall, we're putting America first, or $350 million a week to the NHS, or we're taking back control, or 
And I just think that so many people are so desperate for some sort of narrative. Where are we headed as a company, as an organization, as a community, whatever? Just give me some direction. And I have to believe that probably a majority of people thought we're not going to get 315 million to the NHS. I know that's probably BS, but it's something to hang on to, right? I know this wall is probably never going to give built, but hey, it's a narrative. It's something that, yeah, I can get behind. I can believe in something, right? And I say this, I mean, I was a longtime Hillary Clinton supporter. I donated the federal maximum to both of her campaigns, uh, which are the only campaigns I've ever donated to. So I was a big believer in it and in what she has, frankly, what she has accomplished and certainly you know, her credentials relative to her opponent in 2016, I think, were undeniable. But I, I do remember my mother asking me, because she's been a longtime Republican, and we typically avoid these questions, but she asked me in the most friendly, non-confrontational way possible. I, I totally accept that she's she's more qualified, she's more experienced, and all this sort of stuff, but I don't know, what is she actually going to do? And I just, just absolutely, I remember, I remember about to launch into my, <laughs> all my anti-Trump narratives and I just got like, hit with a brick wall and I just, I just realized I literally don't know a single thing that she is putting forward as to what the future of America and i.e. her campaign was going to be about. Uh, so lo and behold, you know, she lost. The only thing that I think most people remember about the Remain campaign in the UK was that it was called Project Fear, which, of course, was in their branding. <laughs> you know, their opponents were so good, they branded them as well as branding themselves. So, yeah, and I just, my argument is, I just think without sort of humble bragging here. So, I mean, I graduated from Princeton for my undergrad in history, and I got my MBA from Wharton in Philadelphia. You know, two of the supposedly the greatest leadership training grounds in the world, right? And no offense to them, I had great experiences at both places. I absolutely would love to be able to do them again. But I'll be honest, I don't think I learned a single thing about leadership in both of those experiences. Did I learn a lot about management? Absolutely. You know, logical reasoning, critical thinking, quantification, you know, all the classic management tools. Management is massively important. You know, imagine a Boris Johnson or a Donald Trump with a, an equally strong COO next to them, kind of helping to enable. Thank God they didn't have them. But and, and to some extent, you know, I would say Blair Brown, you know, like Blair was a really natural leader, a great communicator. I mean, I know today he's not as well regarded, but certainly at the time. And Brown was possibly one of the great managers of a bureaucracy that we've ever experienced. You know, And his mistake was, in my opinion, was letting his ego get in the way and thinking he had to have the leadership job when he was not cut out for leadership. He was great at bullying the UK government, bending it to his people's will. But when he had to go into the open field of politics, which is uncontrollable by its nature, which he just was obviously deeply uncomfortable with and tarnished his own legacy, perhaps not as tarnished as Blair's was, but still, you know, yeah. So uh, not everyone's a leader. <laughs> well, I think you can become one. I look at myself as someone that came through these uh, management academies, not realizing that I was only trained for management and not leadership. And I've learned some of the tools, I think, of leadership. I'm not in any way saying that I'm of a scale of some of the other names that we could talk about. It is learnable. You know, just in the same way the manager is learnable, I genuinely think that leadership is something you can learn. It's very different. I think um, it also is hard to do in a classroom. I think uh, uh, until you take some real personal risks in life, whether that's starting up a company, whether that's climbing Mount Everest, whatever, you know, whatever things that are kind of off the chart where your possibility for genuine failure is there, 
I think it's hard to learn some of the leadership traits without going through those kinds of experiences. Well, thank you so much, Herb, for coming on to help shine a light for others. And I think those are kind of two clear messages to leave people with is getting out and experiencing things and crafting your story. So yeah, thank you very much. Oh, thanks for the invite, Zoe. Great to talk to you. Thank you.